On a silent strip of road between Jacksonville and St. Augustine, there is a lonely statue of Juan Ponce de Leon. That's where we began our season in January. I saw it in the rain one day at the end of last year, Ponce's eyes looking toward an estuary, but mostly looking over a parking lot. It's here that, supposedly, Ponce de Leon first spotted the peninsula that would soon be tied to his legacy. According to all records, that was April 1513. Finding the peninsula was not the end of Ponce's trip, however. His boat cast off in search of more foreign sands, and soon enough, he found them. He may not have known it then, but he would land again along the very same peninsula, albeit in a more unfamiliar ecosystem. But by June 1513, he had gone much, much further south. He landed on an archipelago south of the Florida mainland, the furthest western extension of what would eventually be called the Florida Keys. Once he arrived to this unique area, he and his crew noticed a few details. The significant thing that Ponce himself noticed was the prevalence of sea turtles. Reports from the time say that he captured some of those turtles. Scientists today have noted the massive prevalence of both loggerhead and green sea turtles around this archipelago. Ponce, noting the common appearance of the animal, named the area for the creature in his own tongue, thus the Tortugas. On top of this, the islands are quite far out from the mainland, meaning that other than the obvious presence of salt water, there is no fresh water to be found on the islands, making them dry, in a sense. Thus, their current name, the Dry Tortugas. The Florida Keys make a long arc, stretching from the southeastern tip of Florida in a surprisingly long string of islands. Look at the Keys on the map and marvel at just how long the Keys are, how far out they go. While Key West is the end of the habitated areas of the Keys, the land formation that makes up the Keys does not actually end there. It keeps going west with much smaller and much less green islands. That is where the Dry Tortugas lay, west of Key West, made up of coral and stone, some of them disappearing beneath the crashing waves of the southern seas. For centuries, as Britain, Spain, and France colonized this region of the continent, ships would make the trip in and around the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, only to find themselves wrecked on the hidden shoals of the Dry Tortugas. We don't even know how many ships actually crashed on the Dry Tortugas throughout the years. That's how many crashes there were. Today, it is the home of the Dry Tortugas National Park, which is, in and of itself, mostly water. It is one of the greatest spots of protected natural ocean in the United States, where coral and marine studies are conducted constantly. It's a shame I've never been, but I'd bet most people haven't, including in Florida. It's probably the national park that is the most difficult to actually access, as you can't drive to it. It's out in the water. Only a seaplane or the official park ferry can get you there from the mainland. I will get there one day, I promise you that. Not only is it one of the most fascinating ecosystems in the state, it is also rich with loads of history. Due to its strategic position essentially at the gateway to the Gulf of Mexico, the Dry Tortugas have been used by the Spanish and the Americans as a military holding. A lighthouse was eventually put up to allow for simpler navigation, and what I wouldn't give for a movie about the isolated sailors stuck on the Dry Tortugas in those early years. Anyway, when the American Civil War broke out, a fort was being built, but due to resources and focus being pulled toward the war, the fort was never fully completed. Today, however, it still stands as the single largest masonry structure in the Western Hemisphere. 
It functioned enough as a military structure at that time that the building was used as a prison for the Union Army throughout the Civil War. Some pretty important people were held there, but that's a story that deserves its own episode. The fort eventually became known as Fort Jefferson, and as the 20th century came into view, the fort was used only a few more times for military purposes. By the 1930s, it had become a national monument. It took several more decades, but the National Monument eventually became a national park, and by 1992, the Dry Tortugas National Park was born. The islands there are spread out, but each needed protection, and with the park in place, the archipelago could prosper in safety. It was one year before the founding of the National Park that two important women from their respective nations met at Fort Jefferson. The first was Queen Elizabeth II of England. She was making her first visit to the state of Florida, and at Fort Jefferson, she met an ambassador for the micronation known as the Conch Republic. Her name was Wilhelmina Harvey, and when she met the Queen of England out there on the distant archipelago of the Dry Tortugas, she presented her with a gift. It was, what else? A conch shell. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the season six finale, and the second part of our two-part exploration into the ambassador of the Keys herself, Wilhelmina Harvey. Last week, we went into the background. We explored how the people of the Keys came to the islands, how they bore the name Conk, and the events that led up to their secession. This week, we talk about the woman herself, how the Conk Republic made its mark, and the world that Wilhelmina left behind. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, part one, you're going to have to go back and give it a listen. It explores the history of Key West, how the people of the Keys became known as the Conks, and how a massive emigration of Cubans to the United States changed life in South Florida. All of that backstory is essential to understand the world that Wilhelmina stepped into as the ambassador of the Conk Republic. So go back, give that a listen, and then come back here because it's time to meet the eponymous ambassador of the Keys. My guest this week came highly recommended. One historian I reached out to suggested that he was the perfect person to talk to about Wilhelmina Harvey. His name is Tom Hambright. My uh, name is Tom Hambright, and I am the uh, Monroe County historian, looking out of the uh, library in Key West. Tom recently celebrated 35 years in his position, a landmark that the whole city celebrated with him. It's no accident that this is how he spent his career. He was ready for this job as soon as it was available to him. A history education major in college, but I graduated in the time of the draft, so I joined the Navy to beat the draft. Spent uh, 21 years in the Navy, and part of the time I got stationed in Key West. And when I retired from the Navy, I came back here and started to work uh, first for the Art and Historical Society as curator of their museums. And then this job became available to the lady that had founded this department. She retired, and I was in an ideal position and met all the qualifications, so I applied and got the job 35 years ago. The Navy was actually the reason that he wound up in Key West in the first place. He was originally from the Carolinas. Not only did he see loads of change come through the Keys in the last three and a half decades, but it also let him intersect with some of the Keys' most famous figures. 
Tom did indeed know Wilhelmina Harvey during her lifetime, but it was Wilhelmina's husband that he met first. His name was Cornelius Bradford Harvey, but nobody called him that. Everybody just called him CB. I first met him in my Navy days when he was working for the city, so I knew both of them. He actually was the mayor of Key West at one point. Wilhelmina herself was also a mayor at one point, the first female mayor of Monroe County. Before she was in that position, however, she was working with CB in his work as the mayor. Together, during their lifetimes, they made a huge impact on the life of the Keys. That's no surprise. Wilhelmina's family history stretches way back in the history of this area. Tom describes it as such. Her maiden name was uh, Goring, Wilhelmina Goring. Her father was an engineer, a German engineer, and his father had come here from Germany as an engineer come to Keys. Uh, one of the things that his, his career was, he was actually the engineer that brought the first train into Key West. The night before Mr. Flagler came down, somebody had to test the tracks all the way, and he was the engineer of the train that tested the tracks before the railroad opened in 1912. Well, I mean, other side, her mother was a true conch which means her family came from the Bahamas. Remember the conks we discussed last week? They were British loyalists who fled to the Bahamas after the American Revolution and attempted to make a life there. They eventually moved to the Keys as farming was difficult on the Bahamas and their descendants became known as the conks. Wilhelmina, who was born in February 1912, one month after Flagler's railroad was completed, was the daughter of a German engineer who worked the railroad and an original conch, making Wilhelmina a true saltwater conch. In interviews later in life, she shared that alongside working the overseas railroad, her father was also temporarily lost at sea during the infamous Labor Day hurricane of 1935, which destroyed many structures of the Keys, including the overseas railroad. It killed over a thousand people when it swept through South Florida. Wilhelmina said in Island Magazine in 1987, quote, My mother was pregnant at the time and my brother was named after the captain of the ship that rescued my father, end quote. Needless to say, Wilhelmina had the keys down to her DNA. It was just built into her. She was Wilhelmina Goring until she met the Navy man, C.B. Harvey, and took his surname. So after the war, they returned to Key West, involved in politics. He served as mayor for a number of years and commissioner in, of the city commission and mayor of Key West. Wilhelmina, of course, I think was a big driving force. She was always in involved in politics and government and then she came into her own she eventually she uh, was elected to the county commission the county mayor the mayor of monroe county is is elected by the commission it's not an elected position and she became the first woman to be the uh, county mayor so legendary career I stumbled upon an oral history interview done a few years back before Wilhelmina passed in 2005. In it, she discusses her early life. She went to school and became a teacher, which apparently was common for girls her age. She quips, quote, as all other Key West girls did, end quote. Apparently, CB was warned about marrying into the conch lifestyle because nobody needed an engineer on the Keys. 
Nevertheless, they were happy with their lives, and soon enough they were involved in Key West politics. CB became mayor and met every important person, including three presidents, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy. When Kennedy came to town, in fact, CB wanted to send a very specific message to the president. You see, the city of Key West had been flagging with the Cuban Missile Crisis making Americans cautious of our southern neighbors. The economy of the city was in crisis. So to make that point to President Kennedy, when it came time for Mayor Harvey to present a shiny key of the city to the president, he instead presented a dirty, bent key, representing the faltering economy. Wilhelmina said later, quote, When he greeted President Kennedy, he gave him the bent key, and of course, the president caught the significance, end quote. She goes on to say that the conks weren't pleased with the dirty key, but the message was received. The issues with Cuban policy weren't just a national issue. This was very personal to the Florida Keys. Cuba was their neighbor, less than 100 miles between them. In the two decades that follow Kennedy's visit, the failing economy became more and more of a trend. In the early part of the 20th century, after the railroad came, the Keys were massively prosperous and economically strong. But the Cuban Missile Crisis started a trend in the Keys that would last for decades. First, there was the Missile Crisis, and then Vietnam left its mark. The Navy had been the major employer here. And in 74, because of the Vietnam War, the Navy took a drastic cut. had a population of about 10,000 sailors and 10,000 dependents here. And they closed the Naval Station, kept the Naval Air Station. But the population dropped down to way down to maybe five or 6,000 out of, from 20,000. So the economy was devastated. On top of the decrease in military personnel, the collapse of the conch fisheries coupled with a decline in shrimp fishing added to the loss of consistent economic movement. In order to keep the city afloat and growing, Tom tells me that Key West shifted its focus to tourism, to ensuring people were actually coming to the Keys. And, you know, and there were some federal grants and they did a number of things, uh, unification projects and so on. And it was going along in the 80s, you know, up and down. But in 1980, Castro let 130,000 refugees loose who landed here in Key West. And the uh, national publicity from that uh, Muriel boat lift devastated the tourist people coming down because they saw on the nightly news all of these Cubans that were supposedly running wild here, which wasn't true. But it's still the perception you get. It had it devastated the tourism 8081 was bad. The Mariel boat lift which we discussed last week was this massive and important movement of Cuban immigrants to America and other countries in the summer of 1980. A false and frankly bigoted perception started to spread that the Keys had quote-unquote illegal immigrants flooding in. This xenophobic fear had an impact on the city's economy just as it was hitting its stride. By 1981, things were looking up and the keys were recovering, but then came April of 1982. Then the uh, federal government decided to put up a uh, immigration check on everyone leaving the keys. Up at uh, Florida City at the head of the keys where there's only one road basically out of the keys. Right. The United States Border Patrol set up a roadblock on US-1 right at the crux of the Keys in Florida City. 
The roadblock was apparently directly in front of the famous and appropriately named Last Chance Saloon, which is the last local spot before crossing into the Keys proper. It was a total nightmare. The traffic block lasted for nearly 20 miles, and in some cases it took people six hours to get clear of it. The central reason for the roadblock to even be there was a non-issue. Not that it matters, but Tom says that he remembers only one person actually being detained, a Canadian who overstayed his visa. All of this chaos, all these problems, was caused by a bigoted perception, turned out no results, and actively affected the survival of Key West's economy for no reason. The people of Key West were, naturally, fed up. It had been two decades of the federal government consistently making decision after decision that made life more difficult for the residents of the Florida Keys. The mayor of Key West at the time was named Dennis Wardlow, and he called everyone he knew, from the county sheriff to the governor at the time, Bob Graham. No one had an answer for him or a plan to help him get rid of this roadblock. When he called Border Patrol itself, they told him it was, quote, none of his business, end quote. That was a mistake. Mayor and civic leaders actually went to federal court in Miami to petition the uh, you know, federal judge to remove the roadblock. The judge says that he had no authority to do that. He couldn't remove it. They came back and tried to figure out something to counteract it. And they came up with the idea of if we're going to treat us like a foreign country, we will uh, create the Conk uh, Republic. And that is exactly what they did. When they eventually arrived back in Key West, local leaders declared that from now on, they were the Conk Republic, honoring the Conk citizens of Key West. Now the mayor, Dennis Wardlow, would become the prime minister. It was made official on April 23, 1982. The Conk Republic was born as an independent nation from its neighbors, the United States. The title was only fitting. They declared to the federal government that the roadblock needed to be removed or else the Conk Republic would declare war on the United States. A new flag was raised, albeit a slight adaptation of the Key West flag, and it is still seen today. It's a blue field with a yellow sun in the middle with a beautiful Queen Conch right in the core of the sun. The first declaration of said war was obviously not actually a violent one. The mayor found a stale loaf of Cuban bread and broke it over the head of, quote, a man in a U.S. Navy uniform, end quote. Apparently from there, the gathered people began throwing, quote, stale bread and conch fritters at federal agents, Navy soldiers, and Coast Guard personnel in attendance, end quote. All of the blustery words I'm using, such as secession and war, were all part of the fun. I mean, it started from a serious problem, a genuine issue that the city of Key West was taking up, but it turned into a faux war, a message. It was all in good fun, but they really meant it. And to be honest, they got results. After they declared war, they then surrendered and requested a billion dollars in foreign aid. They never got that money, but it was a huge publicity stunt. The uh, publicity from that was uh, uh, went worldwide. And of course, that caused the immigration people embarrassment. And they quietly moved away. And so the Conquer Republic was born. And they took the uh, flag of the city of Key West 
which had been adopted back in the 60s and added the word Conk Republic to it. And so you can now get your Conk Republic flag. On top of that, it did actually get the Border Patrol to leave. They were gone from their roadblock within a few days of the Conk Republic's declaration. It proved to be an exceedingly attractive publicity stunt as, in the years that followed the secession, Conk Republic-related merchandise and branding remained and prospered. At the airport, a sign was erected that read, Welcome to the Conk Republic. All over the island today, the deep blue flag of the micronation waves high. Since then, the narrative has changed, at least a little bit, that it was never supposed to be an anti-American thing, but rather the idea that speaking up for your community was at the core of secession. It was galvanizing for the people of Key West, and tourists seemed to love the idea as well. Soon enough, Wilhelmina Harvey, a true conch, got involved. She was a county official, remember, not a city one, and she wasn't involved in the actual events of the secession, but she was a local leader and a proud one at that. But after it was created, she became a big supporter of it and uh, became uh, an admiral in the Conk Navy. I think mainly because she still had her husband CB's uh, old Navy uniforms, and, and that's what she used to wear as her admiral's uniform. You heard that right an admiral in the Conk Navy. That Navy was connected to the second revolt by the one and only Conk Republic, but that was 13 years after the first. Now, it was 1995. The story goes that in September of 1995, a civil affairs battalion in the U.S. Army were practicing a mock invasion of an island and were using Key West as the location to test out their ability to occupy an island under such circumstances. Key West officials said they heard nothing of such a plan and felt ignored yet again. They declared that they would retaliate. They boarded fireboats and other small skiffs, and the people of the Conk Republic fought the approaching military ships with, quote, water hoses, water balloons, and volleys of stale Cuban bread and conch fritters, end quote. Those were apparently the weapons of choice. The army backed down and apologized formally to the Conk Republic. It was Admiral Wilhelmina Harvey herself who accepted surrender. It was only right. Things got a little tense, however, in the following months. What started as a serious issue and turned into war games went a little too far. The Dry Tortugas National Park was invaded in 1995 by the Conk Republic. You see, a government shutdown in Washington had led to the closing of several national parks, including the Dry Tortugas. With their tourism industry again at risk, the Conk Republic demanded that the Dry Tortugas be kept open, especially considering that it is not the most expensive park to run. They offered to pay the park rangers themselves, but they declined. So the Conk Republic arrived to the Dry Tortugas, claiming that the Conk Republic would open the park if the United States wouldn't. Now, however, they were trespassing on federal property, which meant things had gone a little too far. Charges were pressed, but then quickly dropped and everyone just moved on. The park reopened shortly. Nevertheless, it was one of the last official revolts of the Conk Republic. But it wasn't all war games and pranks and bluster. Occasionally, just as important people would meet the mayor of Key West, C.B. Harvey, back in the 50s and 60s, Wilhelmina Harvey was now one of the people to greet important guests as the county mayor. Obviously, she served in that position for Monroe County, but she was also there under the formal, informal position as the ambassador of the Keys, the ambassador for the one and only Conk Republic. 
So when the time came that Queen Elizabeth II arrived to Florida for the first time, the obvious person to meet her was Wilhelmina Harvey. The conks who so many years ago came to be on the keys after a series of movements and changes after the American Revolution were now represented by the ambassador of the conch republic, admiral to the conch navy, a true conch herself, in a meeting with the reigning monarch of the United Kingdom. It's satisfyingly circuitous. It's a perfect circle, in my mind. The queen was en route to Tampa when she stopped in at the Dry Tortugas. But anyway, the queen was going to stop there, and so they needed an official to greet her, and the official was the mayor of Monroe County. And Wilhelmina went out and uh, wore her Conk Republic, uh, or not Conk Republic, Conk uniform, which is the, the ladies' uh, traditional was a red shawl, and uh, of course she had a hat, and was formal, and she presented the uh, queen with a uh, Conk shawl. I actually saw a picture of the event before I knew Wilhelmina's name. Wilhelmina is, as Tom describes her, in a red shawl and a golden hat. She has a bright smile on her face, and she bows just slightly as she hands a giant conch to Queen Elizabeth. The smile on Wilhelmina's face brings me so much joy. She is representing these generations of history at her back and doing it with an immense amount of pride. You can just see it on her face. The Queen went on her way, and Wilhelmina got back to work, but in that moment, the conch republic had never been more official. Wilhelmina passed in 2005, at the age of 93. Her beloved Key West still blazes at the southernmost point of this country, and the Conch Republic that she represented with such pride continues on, their flags still waving. I couldn't help but ask Tom what she was like in the time he knew her. And she was, you know, just a wonderful people person. Uh, if you just met her without politics or anything, you know, you would have liked her, and she would have liked you. Even if you were opposed to her, she liked you. And, and she was wonderful, and she had a fantastic memory growing up here, the whole thing. We could remember people, amazing remembering. As a good politician, you can remember uh, everybody you ever met. And I don't know <laughs> that she, but she seemed to be when we'd be at some kind of event, you know, she seemed to know everybody there and, you know, call them by name. That is, for me, kind of the ideal local official. She was proud of her town. She loved the people in it. She loved their history. She remembered their faces and stories and legacies and names. She was able to have fun in her position, played the part with the Conk Navy, but also represented the ideas that started the Conk Republic in the first place. Tom tells me that she was the first woman elected to the Monroe County Commission and the county's first female mayor, but she also filled her government with other women. She made opportunities for others. Her impact was felt both in the Keys and beyond. She represented her city, her ancestors, and her state well. I like to imagine that somewhere in the storage of the royal family all the way in the United Kingdom, there is a pink conch grown from the waters of the Florida Keys, handed to her by the descendant of British loyalists who found their way to Florida all those years ago. I like knowing that a little piece of Florida is there. The Conch Republic Independence Day is still celebrated every year right around this time. 
Last Friday was the 39th anniversary. Next year will be 40 years. If I have it my way, I'll be there for the celebration. It's the kind of unabashed excitement and pride that I wish everybody had for their home city. I love the other cities in the state of Florida. I love seeing what life is like all over the state, the country, the world, in every city where there are human beings. It's wonderful to see community and the way that people make it. But I love Orlando. Orlando is part of me. It always will be. The strange skyline, the horrible highways, the wonderful people. Orlando is my town. But the Conquer Public sets a new standard for how far we are willing to go to defend and promote our city and its people. We should all aspire to take up the task whenever our city needs us. That doesn't exactly entail creating a micronation or seceding or chucking stale bread and conch fritters at sailors, but it does entail fighting for the people, for your neighbors, for your home. The passion, I think, is what I take away. We can only hope to have an ambassador of our city as passionate and capable as Wilhelmina Harvey. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. Thank you for listening to this season. I am so glad for all of the wonderful listeners. This season really is the most life-changing season of this show. I am eternally grateful for the wonderful kind words that I have gotten in the last couple months for the countless new listeners it it genuinely has changed my life it, it means a lot to me I love making this show and the episodes this season were so so exciting for me but there are some episodes similar to this one that you should go check out I've included them in the description and I am also very glad that I have made some new friends in the keys you should look forward to some new keys history episodes in the very near future possibly this summer we'll see if you did enjoy this episode or this season please consider leaving a five-star review it helps the show become more visible and it means the world to me you can also find me and share the episodes on twitter instagram and facebook at wfmpod if you want to send me an email you can do so at wfmpod at gmail.com and you can follow my personal account on twitter at wfm nick i look forward to hearing from you I'm working on the summer season right now, but I'm also looking for some ideas in the months after summer, especially in October. Do you know of any good ghost stories from the state of Florida? I love ghost stories, and trust me, I am planning on kind of going overboard when it comes to Halloween this year on the show. So if you have a good ghost story, a good spooky folk tale, anything like that, please send me an email. I am looking to collect as many as possible. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Tom Hambright. He was such a joy to talk to. I, I'm so grateful that I got to meet somebody and talk to someone who actually knew Wilhelmina Harvey in her lifetime. You can check out more from the Monroe County Library, including their historical archives of the keys at the link in the description. Go check them out and thank you again to Tom. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can check out more of their fabulous music at the link in the description. All right, we have one more episode this season, an epilogue, a little short story that I kind of just have to tell you. That'll be coming out this upcoming Friday, the last day of April. I will see you then. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. Get your vaccination as soon as you are able. I am actually getting my second dose one week from today. I am very excited to be fully vaccinated. And of course, drink more water. Have a good week. 
I will see you on Friday.